With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it hits me. Oh my gosh, this is that triangle. You know, there's explanation for everything that occurred in the Rendlesham Forest incident that doesn't involve aliens at all. It was completely silent. It comes right over our heads. He saw a classic flying saucer really standing in the clearing. He turned over to my father and held his hand and he looked in his eyes and he said, we're not alone. Hey, hello everyone. This is Martin Willis, your host. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to the audio podcast. First of all, I do appreciate every single listener. And if you support the show now, I want to thank you very much. And I apologize that you actually have to listen to this. If you listen to a lot of podcasts out there, you'll know that there's a lot of podcasts that run ads. And I do get approached all the time to run ads. And when I started this almost 12 years ago, I vowed not to do that. But I do need your help as the show is quite costly. Some of the expenses are bandwidth use, website maintenance, graphics, blogs, audio blogs. And of course, sometimes there's travel expenses. I'd like to do more of that, go to conferences, things like that. If you can help us out for $2 or more a month, uh, you'll see the Patreon link in the text below. I would appreciate it very much. Thanks. And I hope you enjoy today's show. Very uh, honored to have a retired uh, Admiral, Rear Admiral Tim Gallette, uh, U.S. Navy, on this show tonight. And uh, and then in the second half of the show, we have Avi Loeb. Uh, he's going to be talking about his ocean uh, expedition. So, again, I'm very excited about tonight. And just uh, keep in mind, uh, it's very possible that next week we may have a whistleblower-type situation, a military uh, person on the show. It's not 100% confirmed, but what you're probably want to do is go over to our website, podcastufo.com, and go over to the right-hand sidebar and uh, and join our mailing list to make sure you get that notification. Or in YouTube, go down and subscribe to the channel, click the notification bell, and you'll get a notification of that. So I would say it's about a 50% chance that it's going to happen uh, on the 18th next week. And if not, it will be upcoming soon, but it, it's just uh, logistics trying to get that to happen. So uh, the blog this week is a 1965 UFO encounter in Texas, high strangest of the high strangest variety. That's by Charles Lear, who writes for us every week. And I am not going to waste any time. Um, and I'm going to bring our guest in right now. Welcome to the show, Tim. Good to be here, Martin. Uh, or I should say Admiral uh, Gallaudet. Thank you. And pronouncing your name correctly, it's Gallaudet. Gallaudet, yep. 
And thank you so much for your willingness. And I saw that you are also involved in the SCU, which is a, a great organization. So uh, there's so much I want to ask you and in uh, and, and such a short time. But I would like, if you would, if you could start out just by saying uh, some of your stature, what uh, caused your interest in this topic to begin with? Well, twofold, Martin. First off, I served a career in the Navy, 32 years, retiring as a one-star rear admiral. And it, there was a point in my career where I had the job of superintendent of the U.S. Naval Observatory. And I was in charge of a team of astrophysicists and astronomers whose job was to catalog star positions and their brightnesses for the use of satellite navigation. And uh, I learned a lot about cosmology and astrophysics during that tour. And it just gave me an appreciation for how large the universe is temporally and spatially. And you're going to have Avi Loeb on, on this show later. And he speaks about this very eloquently. And for us, in the small sliver of time that human beings have existed in the span and scale of the universe, to think that we're all there is, is just incredibly arrogant. So I had that appreciation. And then there was a point when I was a one-star admiral uh, working for United States Fleet Forces Command where I had sailors uh, out at sea on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, I received a report uh, from my boss that was sent to me and, and more than 20 other admirals that were reporting to the same command and had uh, sailors involved with this exercise. And attached to that, it was a secret email, by the way, on a secret uh, network, and, and the topic was urgent safety of flight. And this was one uh, uh, admiral asked us if we knew what these UAPs were in the airspace because they were causing multiple near mid-air collisions with the naval aviators. And this has subsequently been reported. The video he attached is the now famous leak go fast video. And, and he was he thought that we might possibly be involved with something like a DARPA defense advanced research project uh, experiment. And that was that was what was occurring. And I, when I saw that, I realized, wow, that, and I, what I had suspected se seemed to have confirmation in that kind of channel, which was amazing to me. And but even more striking was what happened after. And that is the next day that email disappeared, uh, was wiped from the network, never saw it again, went to in-person meetings with the leadership of my, of my command there, the U.S. Fleet Forces, and it was never talked about. Yeah, that's it. And uh, I just I couldn't believe it. And I knew there and then that there was more to UAP than myth and hoax. And uh, but I, I held tight and uh, I've started to speak more openly now that that information has become uh, disclosed and, and, and uh, uh, declassified. Now, when this when when you you saw this and you said your your copy with uh, 20 others, um, did the converse is that something you could have a conversation with with your the other people copied on that email or is it something you would not have a conversation with them about it oh i would we, we were all we all received this email it was it was and we were all uh cleared to the top secret level this is on a, a secret network and and that was what was surprising well, it wasn't surprising i knew exactly what happened is once the email was removed and no one talked about it i had suspected and this was had every reason to believe this, that that information was compartmented in, in a in a special access program and that that it was sent inadvertently. And, and then therefore, when probably some intelligence community official found out, 
they ended up uh, wiping the information and, and that's why it was never talked about again, at least, you know, at the secret level. I, I was not read into programs that covered that. Now we're only finding out through uh, through whistleblowers like Dave Grush that uh, that there are programs, have been programs like that, and they've been withheld from the public and the Congress, uh, which we can talk all about. Yes, um, I am. Uh, I had just mentioned at the top of the show that I have like a, a possible sort of a, like a military whistleblower type person that has been vetted. And um, just uh, I'm just dealing with a couple of things, one of them being that I'm hoping that it, it's not going to be too nerve wracking for him to talk about. And this could possibly happen uh, next week. And uh, but I think it's uh, it's the time for this to happen. And I just wanted what you thought about that um, as far as it just seems like there's movement right now. Uh, uh, Dave Grush uh, helped, you know, start the ball rolling. And uh, but I'm, I'm hearing that now I'm not I don't know anything for sure, but I'm hearing that there's possibly a lot of whistleblowers that are kind of coming out of the woodwork. And I'm wondering if you're hearing anything along those lines. I absolutely am. And you're right, Martin. We are at an inflection point in our understanding of the universe and our place in it. And, and now, you know, of course, talk of UFO, UAP heretofore has been uh, not, ex not stigmatized and not accepted in this mainstream scientific community. And I've written a few articles about this, one with Chris Mellon, one with Avi Lowe, who will be on the show next, about the fact that we really need to start looking at these scientifically for many reasons, but the two primary ones are the fact that there's two possibilities. Either this is foreign adversary capabilities that exceed ours, and that's a serious national security concern, but it is appearing more likely that it is, in fact, the existence of non-human intelligence, off-world technology. We really don't even know, but something that we don't understand, which exceeds our knowledge of physics and technology, and could potentially benefit us as a society and planet beyond our imagination. So we absolutely have to pursue this. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. And uh, this is an exciting time. I've been doing this show. Now it's coming up on uh, 12 years. And uh, I think you're the 565th uh, show uh, on this. And uh, this is by far the most exciting time for me to be doing this with all this forward motion. And uh, I'm, I'm just hoping, you know, uh, what I hear from a lot of people that have been around forever looking at this topic, they say, well, here we go again, you know, <laughs> like the, they get their hopes up and then to be dashed in some way or another, uh, whether it's a misinformation type of situation or something like that. But this time I feel uh, very hopeful that, uh, that uh, you know, that I'm going to be out of a job and not be able to talk about UFOs anymore because we'll know about them. You know, that, that uh, uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that I, I think, and I want to get your opinion on this, but this is by far the most important thing that we could learn. I think I'm not going to say in our lifetime, but in humanity. Well, right. It's not just our lifetime. This is in the existence of our species really, and potentially yeah. the planet it's incredible really. But, and you're right. I, I, I think, uh, I think there are very good reasons for you to be hopeful and optimistic because of what has happened of late. We have now the Congress getting involved and have codified the whistleblower protections in law, as well as the establishment of the Defense Department's Aero Office to look at UAP. Uh, NASA has commissioned a study team 
on which is an oceanographer. That's my specialty. Uh, and the one on that team is a very good friend of mine, a very credible oceanographer from the University of Rhode Island, Dr. Paula Bontempi, the dean of their graduate school of oceanography. And she talked about, and during that latest interview of the study team, uh, about the possibility of these phenomena under the sea. And that's, that's where I am look, focusing my effort right now. But we, we have those developments, and we have more interest by the Congress. And I'm sure many of your listeners have listened to comments by Senator Rubio and Senator Gillibrand, and, and there is great momentum now. And that is what has been needed and lacking. And now with that, it, we're only going to increase our, the momentum here in understanding these and investing in the research required to learn more about them and potentially apply or, or even research and develop the technologies that, uh, and, and phenomena that we're, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg of. Well, I also think I have to say that when people of your stature are taking this seriously and taking a look at it and speaking about it, that also helps um, to move the needle along. So I, I want to uh, uh, let you know that I do appreciate the fact that you're, you are open-minded enough to be doing what you're doing. Thank you. Well, Martin, it's, it's my pleasure. I applaud people like you who are carrying this conversation on and have done so probably amongst criticism. But here was my thinking, and, and I appreciate your, your kind and respectful words. But when I saw, for example, retired commander David Fravor and his, his, uh, um, uh, his, his co-pilot, or not co-pilot, his fellow pilot, Alex Dietrich, talk yeah. on 60 Minutes. And then when yeah. Ryan Graves, uh, another felt former naval aviator, came out discussing UAP and his observations, I thought to myself, here are these retired and, and former officers really laying it out there, showing some courage, speaking about things we really need to address, national security concerns. And, uh, and I, I thought, well, there needs to be someone like me who has been a retired admiral, who's a retired admiral, who can speak up for them. And I think, I think the more voices to back them up, the better. And I'm only, I'm only following in their path uh, to try to show courage, which, which they've, they've done in abundance. That's right. That's right. And I'd like to, if I could, I would like to play a clip of a friend of mine, astronomer, that had a, an encounter on a Navy submarine and then talk about it afterwards. So I'm going to run the clip now. We do a lot of work for the Navy, so as such, sometimes you get opportunities. I had an opportunity to go on a sub, uh, and uh, I went for this uh, ride on the sub, if you want to call it that. And um, it was really kind of cool. I, it was the most fun I had getting seasick, to be honest, because submarines are actually, you know, they're cylinders, okay? They're cylinders, and uh, they rock and roll on the surface, but underwater, you don't know they're moving. Okay. However you feel right now in your homes or in your place of uh, business, as long as you're not driving in your car, um, the way <clears throat> the way you feel now, where you can barely detect any motion, that's what it feels like underwater. You don't know. Uh, but to get to where we were going before we went underwater, we actually were rocking and rolling for quite a while. So I got sick. Um, I didn't get sick, sick, but I got sick enough that I had to go sit in the uh, side area off the control room, which is called the sonar shack. And I was sitting next to a kid on the sonar. And to make a long story short, he basically said um, that there was something on the sonar. And he called the executive officer over. The executive officer looked at it, 
<clears throat> and said, you know, a few things like the bearing, the range. And then he looked at it and said, well, how, how fast was that moving? And the kid was incredulous because he had never seen anything like this before. His first time. He's, I hadn't either. And I thought uh, that it was a torpedo. I thought I was going to die because I accepted a ride on a submarine. Uh, and the uh, kid turned to him and said, several hundred knots. So in English, several hundred knots. That means several hundred miles an hour underwater. Okay, that perked my uh, I'm, that perked me up. So uh, the kid didn't know what to do with it because a sonar operator is supposed to be able to classify everything they see, but they, how do you classify that? Well, there's no way. So what did he do? He he kind of goes like this, uh, like like he, I I couldn't see his face. He's turned away from me, and the XO was on whose face I could see, and the XO uh, just told him, "Okay, log it and dog it." And he kid said, "Sir, yes, sir," and I was like, "What what what?" what, what? And I got up and went over to the XO and I said, oh, XO, I, I, I'm, is there anything I can help you with in this? He looks at me and he goes, Mr. D'Antonio, yeah? I go, yeah. He says, you having a good trip so far? Yes, sir, I am. He goes, let's keep it that way. And that was that. Not to be mentioned ever again. But several years later, I had to do a job for the Joint Chiefs. All right. And people know the Joint Chiefs. You know, they report to the President of the United States. Well, I had to do a job for the Joint Chiefs. And I brought this job down to one of the chiefs and the chief and I were sitting alone. And I said to him, probably shouldn't have, I had the words going through my head and I was saying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And while I'm th saying that the words come out, well, can you tell me anything about the fast mover program? And I'm thinking, Oh, I can't believe I just asked that because they called it a fast mover on the boat. And uh, the, uh, the guy said to me, what he could have said was, I don't know what that is. What, what's that? You know, in retrospect, maybe he should have. Uh, he could have said, never heard of it. Maybe he should have. Instead, he said, oh, I can't talk about that program. I'm sorry. I drove back from Washington like this. I was so pumped up by that because that told me that the U.S. Navy is seeing things they don't understand. Anyway, thank you for uh, taking the time to watch that. Uh, and your, your thoughts on that? I'll have a few there, uh, Martin. First off, um, he's very credible in his account because submarines do move when they're surfaced and in ways he described. And him getting seasick, that, that's a, if he were. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
fabricating it. Uh, I think that's a detail that would have been uh, he would have left out. And that so you could, it, there's some authenticity in his encounter. I've ridden on three subs. And so there's there's that there really hit it off that he, he this is a real occurrence in terms of him being, being on a sub. The second part about this USO piece, uh, that is something I'll be honest, I, I'll never discuss classified information um, now that I'm out of the Navy. Uh, but but I, I don't um, I've I have I've heard from one witness who had a similar encounter, which was very credible. And I, I'll leave that there because I promised confidentiality to this person. But that, I'll, I'll say that that's Mark's observation is not the only data point like it. Um, but then set, and thirdly, the fast mover program, I've never heard of it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. In fact, uh, they, yeah, they're, they're, the interesting thing about that occurrence is Navy sonars and signal processing, which I have a PhD in, by the way, it, uh, they're, they're designed to track certain things. And objects going several hundred miles per hour are not one of them. Yeah. We are looking at other things with very distinct signatures that we train for and our systems are optimized to detect and track. And so um, that is that to me is probably why there's not a, an abundance more of occurrence like these. But but like I said, there has been one other that I know of and I'm working now to, to determine if there are uh, have been others. And that's that's taking time. But I've um, here's an interesting uh, I think a piece of information for your listeners as a, a former oceanographer of the Navy, the top oceanographer and meteorologist in the Navy, as well as acting head of the national oceanic and atmospheric administration, NOAA, I've been uh, asked to be a member of the ocean studies board of the national academies of science, engineering, and medicine. So I've served on the board for about a year and I've been, just been nominated by the white house to serve on a body called the ocean research advisory panel. And this is the top ocean research body in the US. And uh, for the former, the Ocean Studies Board, I actually went to them and I proposed to conduct a survey of all ocean data sets in federal agencies like the Navy, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Naval Oceanographic Office, as well as research institutions like my former alma mater Scripps Institution in Woods Hole for anomalous phenomena under the sea. And the Ocean Studies Board, they did not laugh me out of the room. They actually said, this is interesting. I referred to NASA's study team and they thought, wow, uh, they're, they're, this is worthy of investigation. But instead of having us conduct a study, what you really need to do is include the bodies, uh, the agencies that have access to classified data too. That's, that's the Naval Office of Naval Intelligence and the Naval Oceanographic Office. And they said the body that governs those studies is called the Naval Studies Board. And I said, wow, I know it well. And they said, well, why don't you go and ask them? So I did. I went to the Naval Studies Board under the National Academies. The chair of that board is four-star Admiral retired Gary Roughhead, former chief of Naval Operations, formerly my boss in the Pentagon. I briefed him before. I went to him and I said, Admiral, you know, I think we need to do this kind of survey and then take the data. And then that will help inform us to guide a more directed study of USOs or UAP undersea. And, uh, and then we can maybe learn more about them and see if there's national security concerns, et cetera. And he said, good idea. I want you to do it. And by the way, we'll get the added benefit of learning where some of our environmental intelligence gaps are because the Chinese and the Russians are really getting ahead of us. Well, so, so w w the only thing I have to do now is get money. 
I need to get a federal agency or several to support the study. And it won't cost very much, by the way. And that's that's where I am now is I'm working to talk to those offices I just mentioned to see if they'll sponsor some money for this body to do a survey of undersea UAP. So very interesting that someone at that level, you gave me great credit in having stature. This is the former head of the U.S. Navy, and he is he's uh, accepted that this is an area we're studying. Right. And, uh, you know, there's such a small part of the ocean that we have explored. And, you know, it's 70. Well, the water water is 73 percent of our planet, you know. And uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, people have said to me, you know, in the past, why on earth would they go under the ocean? And I don't I don't have the answer to that. But what it does seem is that they seem to like Lou Elizondo has mentioned, they seem to go uh, between media without any problems, like sometimes not even a splash when they go into the ocean and then high speed in the ocean, which is <clears throat> that's not the only case I've heard about. But I mean, I don't know these things. I don't have any you know data on it that I can say is certain. But still, um, you know, it's there's all kinds of things that happen with the UAP. Can, and I'm talking about no sound uh, breaking sound barrier boom, you know, when they all of a sudden shoot off at several thousand miles an hour. And there's so many things that they defy. And uh, and I realize it's possibly just some type of phys physics we haven't, you know, discovered yet or something like that. But it's all very fascinating to me. I agree. And, and so, uh, yes, Morton, absolutely. I'm sure your listeners are probably well acquainted with this book, uh, Carl Fine's UFOs and Water. And that's this is this is a great bibliography of anecdotes. And what I want to do is what Avi's doing for UAP in the atmosphere, and that is get scientific data. And, and that's that's really the next step that we can really learn something about. Right. Exactly. So when you heard Mark just say a few minutes ago that he was told to log it and dog it. Where do you think a report like that goes? Right. Well, let's see. There are several uh, places data like that goes. And um, and uh, one might be, uh, I, I'm, I'm not totally familiar with all the data dissemination for submarines, but uh, the commander of undersea surveillance is the operator of those undersea surveillance networks, the SOSIS arrays, and, and they might possibly be one source. There's also a number of universities that do undersea uh, warfare engineering and research, including Penn State University and Johns Hopkins. So th those are all possibilities, and those are all, all three of those are, are, are entities I am engaging with to uh, determine if I, there, there's information I can gather. And they would also be targets or sources, pardon me, of the study I mentioned and hope to get funding for. Are you surprised that funding is, uh, hasn't, that there's been limited funding in general uh, when it comes to this topic and research for this topic? I mean, it's taken a long time for the scientific community to take this topic seriously with the ridicule and, all, and the taboo factors. Um, so, are you surprised that it's it's hard to get funding, or do you think that will eventually come with the way things well, are changing? Well, Martin, it's as you say, because of that stigma, <laughs> getting funded for anything like this has been almost impossible. Avi Loeb has done it successfully, but he's he's a miracle worker in his own right. Yeah. But, uh, but but he really is. He's the beginning of sea change. And and now recently, Senator Gillibrand has called for com 
full funding of the DOD's Arrow Office. And, and that, is, that is the beginning of something. And, and it's, it's, it's a wave I want to ride, uh, again, for under, under CUAP research possibly. And, and that, that's, that's something that we all want to pay more attention to and I think is a real welcome change. Right, right. Here's a question that came in from a very longtime listener who's uh, part of the scientific community. Uh, the DOD obviously has classified sensors that have detected UAP, yet hide this data behind a national security curtain. People like Avi Loeb are striving to collect uh, their own data to circumnavigate this problem. And his basic question is, couldn't something be worked out to share classified data to the great, the greater scientific community that would not compromise national security? Possibly is the, my answer for your listener. Uh, because the tr trouble, the trouble with disclosing data is the DoD rightly does not want to reveal what they call sources and methods. So if we were to share some data, for example, on a UAP in the atmosphere or undersea, then it will alert our, our adversaries of, of the where our sensor networks are and their capabilities for detection. And we don't want that. There's that that's a really, that that is, I, I know a, risk, a lot of listeners in this space criticize the DOD for lack of transparency, but, but there are valid reasons for that. And that's why people like Avi should be supported more and more because he, he's removing himself from those chains and he's going to do it himself. And the more people we can get to study that as well in different arenas like me for the undersea aspect, that we don't have to depend upon the DOD apparatus and their national security concerns, the better. Right. And I totally get what you just said. And it makes total sense. We can't, we can't reveal things. And I'm sure um, that will not happen in any type of way. Um, one of the things that I have thought about over the years is that the Air Force or the military in general or our government really doesn't understand what's going on. They may know more than we do, but perhaps they don't really understand. Thus, they're not going to be able to say they can protect us from whatever it is. And I think that's, that's another situation that is tricky for them. Because um, if they are hiding things from us, which I do believe they probably are for maybe um, security reasons or not, uh, then, you know, they have a lot of explaining to do, as they used to say. I think it was on uh, Jackie Gleason or someone. But they have <laughs> a lot of explaining to do. So, Martin, I have a perspective on this. Uh, partially true. There, we, we don't want to reveal all the risks necessarily. I mean, there's, new, for example, adversary uh, chem bi chemical, biological weapon capabilities. We keep those classified. This is something we don't want the whole entire public to know, not because we want to hide it from them, but again, we don't want our adversaries to know what we know about them. So the, I, I would, I, having served in the military and had a clearance for over three decades, I don't, I'm not one who espouses the view that the establishment is purposely evading and hiding things that the public should know about. What I really believe, and I, I think when Dave Grush gave his interview, I got it completely because what, what he's talking about there is the fact that these compartmented programs who have been owned by cleared defense career bureaucrats who, who shielded leadership from the information, thinking they were the, the privileged protectors of it. And that, that people like me who were appointed for short term 
tours were just temporary employees. I've seen it. I have seen that, that behavior and that attitude for much less important, but also, but similarly compartmented programs. And so I, I understood, I've seen that. And granted, these people begin their service in these programs with good intent, knowing how important it is to keep them uh, safe and, and, and not shared widely. But then when it gets to a point where leaders like me, and I think some people might be familiar with this Wilson memo. Wilson was a two-star admiral like me. I was a one-star, pardon me, but we were both in the intelligence uh, arena of the Navy, now called information warfare. And he was upset rightly because he felt that he was getting shielded from information programs that were compartmented about this possibly UAP technology that, that he should have known about. And the bureaucrats were saying, oh, you don't have a need to know. And, and that and he, and he was incensed. And I rightly, he should have rightly been. And that's where we are today, I believe. Because that's coming out now. More importantly, not just shielding leaders like me and him, but the Congress, which is totally illegal. And that is a problem and that is un-American. And so the more we see, the better. Dave Grush is, uh, uh, is showing great courage. And when he released that interview, I got it. And that's, that's really... That was the inflection point of our time. Right, right, exactly. And do you think, I mean, we're all, uh, a lot of people, my friends or whatever in the UFO community, when we first heard that there was, you know, supposed craft, it was like, ooh, he's really going to go there. But, you know, it's possible. It's possible. And um, the person that I have coming, possibly coming on next week is kind of more uh, along the lines of, uh, that being the case. So uh, it, it's, uh, but it, it's fascinating. But in general, um, did you think those were really incredible claims that we really need to, you know, figure out if, get some type of, uh, you know, evidence that this does exist? Do you think that evidence is going to come through? Well, David, uh, pardon, pardon, Martin, pardon me. What, okay. David, what David said is, Yes, we, I, we're going to learn more. <laughs> we're going to learn much more. And I, 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 believe, I believe his claims are credible. I, I, I do. I think we are going to find out more about capabilities, technologies, phenomena, like, like he said. And I, I, it is, it's shocking. I'm very curious why this isn't capturing more attention in the press. While, meanwhile, we're talking about very, I mean, other things that I feel are relatively mundane. Uh, but it is what it is, and I think it's going to take a while for society to adjust because the magnitude is almost greater than we can comprehend. Right, right. Now, here's a question I asked Lou Elizondo, um, and this is, uh, I know you can't talk about something that's classified. I totally respect that. Our, I guess I'm going to ask you, if it's not uncomfortable, are there things that you know that about the UAP phenomenon that you were read into that you can't talk about, or is it only on a need-to-know situation that you were not read into, anything like that? Uh, to be totally honest, Martin, I never, the only thing I saw about UAP in the military was what I just described to you at the beginning, and that was that that go-fast video on a yeah. secret email that has since been declassified. I've never heard, I've never seen anything about it. Now, rightly, I was, I was no oceanographer or meteorologist, so I was read into programs that related to those those fields. 
And so I would never, there would be no reason for me to have come across them because I didn't do any aerospace work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, back on that, when the strike force in 2004 off of the coast of California, when that happened with the Tic Tac you mentioned earlier, uh, Dietrich and Fravor, um, when that, something like that happened, that is contained, right? I mean, that's not part of other parts, other, you know, aspects, other people in the Navy would know about that situation. That's probably contained on location. And is, is that what would happen in a situation like that? Well, not necessarily, Martin. I, I mean, if a, a squadron's doing workups like uh, Commander Fravers was and training off the coast, which I've done uh, both both the West Coast and or in the West Coast primarily and out in Japan, uh, often information shared. What what it, they call these TTPs, tactic techniques and procedures. So let's say they discovered or learned or maybe found a better way to conduct a strike, for example. Well, that would get shared across other squadrons. So and then maybe maybe hazard information, whether it be related to weather or anything else, that information gets shared. They call them has reps, has reports. So on typically, really in general, for things that aren't touching intelligence community channels, information should be shared, certainly about these things that were are causing safety of flight issues, which was one of my top jobs as the uh, head meteorologist of the Navy. So it's 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 interesting and disconcerting that that was secreted away. And now the disclosure that's coming out, I think, can only be good. Now, when that if that situation happened and you were involved, say, I think you were on. Was it the Kitty Hawk that you were? That's correct. Yeah. Say that you were doing an exercise like that. And then you heard from the radar officer, whoever that would be, whatever the title would be that these things are moving along at high altitude at only 100 knots, which is uh, impossible basically to stay uh, that slow at that height at, and then dropping down to the ocean a fraction of a second. And there were like 65 of them or whatever they were seeing. If if you were in command of a situation like that and, that, and you knew this was happening, um, wouldn't you really want to get out there right away and see what the heck is going on? I mean, do you have that type of control um, on a ship when you're doing an exercise like that? Well, interestingly, yes and no. Uh, so let's say that you're talking specifically about Kevin Day, the, the, who was in the, uh, I think the Princeton, yeah. and it was the Combat Information Center. I know those units on ships well, and he was seeing these very anomalous radar uh, contact activity but what the way that what happened obviously is that uh, you share information with your chain of command. So that strike group was probably probably reporting the U.S. Third Fleet again, and just like my situation with U.S. Fleet forces on the East Coast, uh, the information was shared. I, I'm sure, but then remember what happened to, with their story. Uh, people people came on board. In all likelihood members of the intelligence community, you name the agency, it could be CIA, DIA, whatever. And they obviously owned some, a program that they did not want disclosed and they took that information. So that, that's, that's what's all coming out. We don't know right now exactly how the, the structure of those. And here's the interesting thing, and it's important. So we're having disclosure, it's good. I'm, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm giving David Grush and and David Fravor and Alex Dietrich and Ryan Graves, great uh, recognition for what they've done. But at the same time, 
there are compartmented programs that we, as I mentioned, that we don't want disclosed uh, yeah. because they are protecting sensitive national security technology and capabilities. So there's a, this is a tough, a slippery slope to navigate. And, and it's just going to take some time. It's going to take Congress. It's going to Congress and Rubio, for example, I believe is on the Intelligence Committee in the Senate. They're, they're the ones that can set the boundaries on what can and cannot be shared. And they're going and they're doing it now. Now, that, that's what I wouldn't ask the public to try to figure out how the DOD is going to get this done. The Congress will do that just fine. And Chris Mellon's an expert on this. And he's he's giving great advice uh, to in that capacity. So on that particular case, going still sticking with that for a minute. So the Hawkeye uh, lands, they had take off, they remove the Databricks from it. Um, and then someone comes on board and they take the Databricks. So those Databricks exist somewhere. And wouldn't you think that that should be called up and things like that should be investigated? There's film footage from the 1970s from um, that happened in military film and situations like that, these things exist somewhere. Uh, where do you suppose they would exist that, I mean, they should be able to be uh, accessed, I would think. Well, uh, we don't know. Now that's what we need to, we need to understand and determine Martin, because th that's not been revealed. And, 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 and we've had, we've had these people I've mentioned come forward. Now the Congress is getting involved and that's, that's what they're digging into. And remember, this is important. So you're making you're making these statements, and and actively we have the the different members of the House and the and the and the Senate uh, looking into this, and they're 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 striving to ensure information is disclosed, but at the same time preserving the channels, the the, the programs that that often protect information like this. That would have, for example, the various um, the the collection. Uh, parameters and capabilities of the Hawkeye, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's information we want shared on this anomalous activity, but then within it, there's information about our own force capabilities. We don't want shared with the public. So they're sifting through all this. It, it's, it's to me, I'm sitting back as a retired consultant and I am uh, fascinated by this really elaborate dance that uh, and they're, they're, they're choreographing right now. And uh, yeah, but, but the, the, the positive news, and I'll just close on this, is that it's happening. And again, we are we are at a we are at a momentous point in time where we're going to learn things in our lifetime that we never thought we'd learn. That's right. And I know you have to go. And I want to thank you so much for your time. It really means a lot to me that that you came on the show. And uh, I respect your work. And again, I feel very honored um, to host you. And thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. It's been a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to coming back. You bet. All right. Take care. You too. Yeah. All right. Okay, everyone. So now we are going to bring on um, our guest, Avi Loeb. All right, I'm back and I'm with Dr. Avi Loeb and he is the professor of science at Harvard Astronomy Department. He's also the founder of the Galileo Project and that's what we're gonna talk about last time. Uh, Avi, you were on, we were talking about you going on this excursion 
and voila, you went and what a success. So exciting. Um, and I have, I have some questions for you because I find it very, a lot of this whole thing, very, very interesting. So, um, if you would, um, let's say this happened early July. I mean, uh, it was just a few days ago, right? I mean, a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, um, it, uh, it, started, it started four weeks ago, but the story actually starts on January 8th, uh, 2014, when the US uh, government sensors, primarily satellites, detected a fireball uh, uh, near uh, Papua New Guinea over the Pacific Ocean. And uh, uh, that was a meteor that collided with Earth uh, and released uh, a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic uh, bomb energy um, in an explosion. And uh, uh, this meteor ended up being very different than other space rocks we encountered before or since then. Uh, and uh, five years later, we realized that it was moving so fast that it cannot be bound gravitationally to the sun. It was moving faster than the escape speed from the solar system. And so we wrote a paper with my student, Amir Siraj, where we suggested that this is the first recognized interstellar meteor, an object from outside the solar system, at least half a meter in size. And uh, uh, the paper was not accepted for publication because my colleagues argue that they don't believe uh, the US government. But then uh, three years later, a letter uh, came from the US Space Command to NASA uh, saying that at the 99.999% confidence, their uncertainties in the measurements are so small that they're confident that it came from interstellar space. And at that point, the US government also released more data about the fireball, uh, which showed the three uh, flares in it. Uh, and uh, we were able to conclude that this object had a material strength that was tougher than all space rocks, 272 of them that were cataloged by NASA over the past decade in the CNEOS uh, catalog that they have. So that means that um, you know this object is an outlier, both in terms of its material strength being tougher than even iron meteorites that make 5% of all meteors, but also in terms of its speed, because it was moving at 60 kilometers per second outside the solar system, faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the sun. And so one possibility is that it was a spacecraft manufactured by a technological civilization, which had some additional propulsion. That's why it was moving faster than most stars near the sun. And moreover, it was made of an alloy that is uh, tougher in material strength than uh, even iron meteorites. And uh, this is not a philosophical question. We can uh, answer it by retrieving materials from this meteor going to the Pacific Ocean. So at that point, we decided to plan this expedition. And a few months later, um, Charles Hoskinson uh, had a Zoom meeting with me and said that you have the money. It uh, cost uh, $1.5 million. Uh, and uh, we basically designed a sled. We had a team of uh, two dozen exceptional uh, professionals, the best in the world uh, in ocean expeditions. Uh, you can see the sled. Uh, it had magnets on it. These are the circular uh, features that you see in the black uh, rubber. Uh, on both sides of the sled, and uh, it weighed the sled weighed about 200 kilograms. It was roughly a meter in width, 
uh, and we connected it to the ship with a cable that was uh, tied up in a winch. And basically, we lowered the cable so that it reaches the ocean floor at a depth of two kilometers. And we dragged the sled on the ocean floor uh, with the ship. Uh, and you can see here the A-frame uh, uh, through which the cable connected the sled. What you see in the middle panel is um, us bringing up the sled after it visited the ocean floor. Uh, in, in the first... Uh, what you see, by the way, in the bottom are uh, the the filming uh, crew members um, filming me doing my morning jog at the sunrise. Every morning I I jog three miles for half an hour, and I did it also on the deck, not not running um, uh, along, but running at the same spot. And and they use the drone to film me. I should say that. At the end, <laughs> Uh, um, they asked me, it looks like uh, you're running. Are you running away from something or towards something? And I said that I'm running away from some of my colleagues and I'm running towards uh, higher intelligence in interstellar space. <laughs> so at any event, uh, we, um, at first, in the first few days, we had difficulty keeping the sled at the bottom of the ocean because uh, the cable would lift it up. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, and uh, the front it, of it up, right. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, sort of like a kite. It had a kite effect because of yeah. the currents. And then we realized, the engineers on the team realized that a good method of keeping it on the on the floor, and that is uh, by following the currents. And, and once oh. we managed to do that, uh, we were successful. And after the first uh, few days, we had it uh, on the ocean floor collecting materials. And most of the material was black powder, basically volcanic ash, tiny particles um, that were attached. They were magnetic and attached to the magnets and we scraped them off. And uh, at, at that point, you know, I wrote uh, altogether 36 uh, diary reports. And uh, one of them in the middle of the mission after about six days uh, was uh, titled where are the spherols? Spherols are uh, molten droplets from the surface of meteorites when they uh, are uh, exposed to the extreme heat from the fireball. And basically the oh. surface, surface melts down and it, you get droplets raining down just like raindrops. Um, oh. And uh, they are expected to be a fraction of a millimeter in size, about a millimeter, about a milligram in uh, mass. And we haven't seen them at that point six days after the mission. And uh, But at that point, we decided to filter out the tiny black powder particles, uh, the volcanic ash particles, by using a mesh with uh, a size of uh, a quarter of a millimeter. So all the tiny black particles were filtered out. We were yeah. left with bigger particles. We put them under a microscope. And lo and behold, we saw spherules. And I was thrilled to see these metallic marbles. They were very distinct relative to the background, roughly uh, half a millimeter in size, between 0.1 millimeter to a millimeter. Uh, but in fact, there were smaller ones that we couldn't pick up with our tweezers. And altogether, mm -hmm. we collected 50, but we have many more, I believe, in the materials, especially smaller ones. And uh, that demonstrated that you know, most of them were near the meteor path, uh, the likely meteor path that we localized using seismometer data 
from Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. So we could pin down the path of the meteor to within a kilometer or so. And we went there and we found most of the spherules there, much fewer far away from that site. So that gave preliminary evidence that we are on target. And then uh, we collected these spherules and uh, we now, you know, for the first time, humans have uh, possession of uh, materials that belong to a large object that came from outside the solar system. And wow. the, yeah. the first question obviously is, can we demonstrate from the composition that it's material that is not from the solar system? And, you know, by studying the elements, studying the radioactive isotopes, we could even date the material, how old it is. And we are now engaged in that process uh, on the day we came back, uh, we stopped at UC Berkeley to do preliminary analysis, but now most of the material is being analyzed at Harvard University. And I just uh, a couple of days ago, I sent some of it to the Brooker Corporation in Germany. So we have independent people looking at uh, those materials. And, you know, these are really experts uh, in terms of studying such, uh, such uh, spherules. And uh, I hope to have results by the end of this month and they will be reported in a scientific paper, the preliminary analysis. And yeah. then of course, we'll continue to analyze it uh, using you know, imaging devices like an electron microscope to get a sense of what these ferrules look like. Um, we will also analyze the composition using a mass spectrometer and other devices. And um, you know, the, uh, it will become clear within a few weeks whether the material is from outside the solar system. Then the second question, the next question And I have uh, more is, questions too, by the way. <laughs> sorry? I said, I'm sorry, pardon me. I said, I have some questions as well too, but go ahead. Well, the second question is whether the uh, materials uh, were made by a technological civilization. That's mm -hmm. obviously the more interesting question. And um, you can imagine droplets of, uh, for example, semiconductors, they would have rare elements that are much more abundant than you find in nature. Uh, so we shall see what, what we find. Please uh, go ahead, ask me questions. Oh, sure. Um, so, the, well, I should say, um, first of all, that uh, Admiral Gallaudet, um, I was thrilled to hear that he was part, our, this is our last guest, I was thrilled to hear that he was part of the Galileo, Galileo project. And uh, what a, you have built such a great team. I just wanted, wanted to say that um, of all the people you have involved. And you're able to raise money, which is really unusual in this type of situation. And, you know, and um, as I said in, through an email that, you know, you found the needle in the haystack, you had the open-mindedness, and I really, really appreciate, and I know a lot of other people appreciate um, your willingness to take this topic seriously and really look at it. So the questions, um, is this, well, first of all, I was kind of surprised that you were able to go exactly to the site um, where this thing landed and how, how was that recorded accurately enough for you to find something? Well, the US government provided the location uh, in the NASA catalog of this meteor to within 11 kilometers. That was the uncertainty. That's a big region, the size of Boston. And uh, to find a millimeter size uh, spheral within a region of 
10 kilometers is sounds like an impossible task. Uh, but we were able to localize it better by using seismometer data from Anusa Island in Papua New Guinea. The seismometer recorded the sound wave, the blast wave that resulted from the explosion. And since the sound speed is much smaller than the speed of light, uh, it, there is a delay in the arrival time uh, of the sound wave to the seismometer. And from that delay, knowing the speed of sound, we were able to figure out how far away the explosion wow. was. Isn't that and that allowed us to narrow down the path, the likely path of the meteor to within a kilometer or so. And that's the region that we focused on. And indeed, we found most of the spherules in that region uh, we also checked the control regions far away, just to demonstrate that we don't see the same concentration of spherules there. How about that? That's really amazing. And uh, is it possible, or has there been any type of argument that the speed of this thing could have been caused by some other type of situation, like some type of slingshot effect or something? Um, well, the, the chance speed. of um, the chance of of course everything is possible, but to get a slingshot, uh, you need to range for very rare circumstances where you have two massive objects that are moving uh, near each other, and then this this interstellar object is passing in between them so that they kick it uh, gravitationally. That is possible, but <laughs> it's very unlikely because most of the objects in interstellar space do not originate from a slingshot. They originate from a common source because these are the most abundant. So to find the first one uh, to originate from a very rare arrangement where you have two massive objects e ejecting uh, an interstellar object is, is unlikely. Uh, it's possible, but then you have to explain why would this be common? Why would most interstellar objects originate from slingshots? Why not from the Oort clouds of stars where we have a huge number of rocks and they can be dislodged very easily by a passing star? These are the most common environments. You have lots of rocks in the solar system at 100,000 times the Earth-Sun separation. They are very loosely bound to the Sun. They are, their typical orbital speeds are a uh, hundred times smaller than uh, the motion, the, the speed of the Earth around the Sun. So they're very loosely bound, and a passing star can easily dislodge them. You would expect most interstellar objects to originate from the outskirts of planetary systems like the solar system, because it's easy to kick them out by passing stars. I see. And uh, imagining a situation where you have, for example, two stars close together, and from their vicinity, within this tiny, compact environment, you eject most of the interstellar object. That would be, you know, a very unlikely proposition, uh, because most of the rocks reside in the outskirts of planetary systems like uh, the solar system. So um, it's possible, but it's unlikely. Uh, and the, you know, it's, it's also possible that somehow the first interstellar object belongs to 5% of the population of stars, that it came from you know, an unusual outlier. But that would be, again, unlikely. Um, mm -hmm. And why would it have material strength that is higher than the typical space rocks that we find in the solar system? You need to explain two facts in the first interstellar meteor. So um, 
you know, it's possible that there are some astrophysical environments that produce a lot of objects and they are, these environments are very different than the solar system, of course. So then we will learn something new about natural incubators or environments that generate, produce such objects. That would be new knowledge, which would be very interesting. Yes. Uh, however, it's also possible that we are dealing with a technological object. Uh-huh. Now, they obviously carry some iron in them to be picked up by the magnet, right? Yes. No, I mean, <laughs> the iron uh, we detected directly by putting the spherules inside an X-ray fluorescence analyzer, which is basically a device that shines X-rays, just like when you go in the airport, you pass your luggage through X-rays. Uh, and so this device shines X-rays on the spheral, and the X-rays penetrate about 100 micro microns, a tenth of a millimeter, through the surface. And uh, whatever atoms exist in that layer that is being exposed to the um, X-rays, these atoms get excited. The electrons get excited, and they radiate on their own uh, spectral lines, which are the fingerprints of the elements that they make the surface of the spheral. And so we were able to infer the composition of the surface of the spherules uh, of a few of them on the ship. And we saw that uh, most of them have uh, mostly iron, uh, basically something like 84% or so. So, and that explains why they were magnetic. Uh, and of course we were worried that perhaps the materials will not be magnetic we had a sluicing device, which uh, is being used to find gold, for example, and uh, based on the density of materials that distinguishes them from the background. And we used it only once, but as soon as we started collecting spherules, we realized that we have spherules, we decided to stop using the sluicing device and just focus on getting as many spherules as possible so that we can uh, analyze the composition of the object. Uh, to a better precision. Now, do these things, are these things spherical, perfectly looking spherical um, because of a, a gravity situation? I'm trying to figure out, I know, I know if something's like, doesn't have any gravity around it, it'll become completely spherical, I would imagine. Um, no, no, actually. Uh, gravity plays no role in tiny objects. Gravity plays a role in objects, the mass of the earth or bigger. Uh, but if you consider millimeter-sized object, the, the self-gravity of the object is practically negligible. Okay, oh. so it, it's so not it keeping change? itself bound by gravity. It's keeping itself bound by chemical uh, bounds, you know, the binds, binding energy between atoms. That's what keeps it together. Um, uh, so it's not gravity. And then uh, what makes it spherical is... Um, the surface tension, you know, it minimizes the energy, just like a droplet of uh, of rain. You know, why is a droplet of rain roughly spherical? Because there is surface tension. It's just like soap bubbles. If you look at the soap bubble, uh -huh. it looks uh, reasonably spherical. So there is um, the, the uh, fluid tries to minimize the amount of energy by keeping itself spherical because bigger, you know, uh, different structures would have more surface tension, uh, more surface area. You will need more 
energy to sustain them and, and a system prefers to go to the lower, lowest energy state. So it relaxes to the minimum energy configuration, which ends up being spherical, it has nothing to do with gravity, it has to do with tension on the surface related to chemical bonds, okay? And uh, so just like uh, raindrops, um, there is also the effect of friction on the air that they could give it a slightly egg-shaped uh, structure. But we also saw um, droplets that solidified as soon as they merged, but before the merger product became spherical. So if they solidify just at the point of contact, you end up with a, a lopsided uh, object that has, you can see the original uh, spheres coming together. We saw one, one example of that. And also, <clears throat> when we imaged at UC Berkeley one of the spherules, uh, we saw an amazing view um, that the spheral is made of spheres inside spheres. So sort of like Russian dolls. Ah. Uh, when we looked inside of it, yeah. and the smallest spheres were hundreds of atoms in size. Presumably they solidified first and then they were engulfed by molten iron in a bigger droplet that uh, basically glued together the smaller spheres that condensed earlier. And then a bigger one <laughs> uh, came and, and contained all of those. So you end up with spheres inside spheres kind of configuration, which was really beautiful. How about that? And were you told, like, this is a crazy idea by your colleagues or, or anyone to begin yeah, with? Yeah, I mean, just uh, a week before we left, um, uh, one of my colleagues said, uh, oh, you, you know, many of us think that you will not find anything, that it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, and why would you do that? Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm doing the heavy lifting here. I'm, I'm actually going to the Pacific Ocean uh, to search for the evidence. Um, you just sit back and relax. You don't have to do anything. And if we don't bring anything back, um, you can say, I didn't expect you to find anything. Uh, but in fact, we are funded by a private donation that would not have been used for promoting science. Otherwise, I'm not taking any of your uh, funds uh, for dark matter research, for example. Um, and so it's a win-win situation where I'm following the scientific method just in attempting to collect evidence for a meteor that appeared unusual that may be interstellar in origin. And uh, amazingly enough, we found the materials. And, uh, you know, I, I heard back from that uh, scientist who, who cheered and said, uh, congratulations. I'm gonna ask, uh, this is a, a long, long time listener um, asked this question of the Admiral. I'm gonna ask you the same question. The DOD obviously has classified sensors that have detected UAP yet hide this data behind a national security blanket. People like Avi Loeb are striving to collect his own data to circumnavigate the, this problem. This seems somewhat ridiculous. Couldn't there be a way this could be worked out to share classified data to the greater scientific community and not compromise national security? I thought it was such a great question. And I wonder what you, th I know we're about out of town time, but I wonder what you thought about that question. Well, it's an excellent question, but the, the U.S. government obviously is concerned about national security, not about uh, our knowledge of interstellar space or extraterrestrials. And as a result, I'm engaged in trying to collect the information because the sky is not classified and uh, it's, it may be easier to collect the information 
from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean than uh, to ask the US government to release classified data. Uh, and so I think we can pursue it in parallel. And that's the rationale behind the Galileo project. We built an observatory that is already op operational at Harvard University. We are making copies of it. And we will collect data that will be open to the public. And if the government uh, decides to release classified data, that would be fantastic. If not, we'll just try to collect it ourselves. I see. One last question. I know you got to go. You're a very busy guy. It was hard to book you. Um, what was it like when you found the first piece? I, I was thrilled. Basically, the geologist on the team, uh, Jeff Wynn, uh, ran down the stairs to call me because I was the chief scientist on this expedition. And um, he said, that we found a spheroid. And I went up the stairs and I basically hugged uh, the person who was next to the microscope, Ryan Weed, and said, that, that's amazing. Can you please put the spheroid under the microscope, uh, uh, under the X-ray fluorescence analyzer so we can infer uh, the composition? Uh, and he said, okay, we'll do that. Uh, and then I looked at him and he asked, do you mean right now? And I said, of course I mean right now. Uh, what do you, how, how can you wait? So he put it there and we found that it's made mostly of uh, iron indeed. And, um, and that was a thrilling moment, an amazing moment, because frankly, before we went there, I wasn't clear as to whether we will find anything uh, related to the meteor. And the, the coordinator of the expedition, Rob McCallum, uh, ordered the, a case of champagne bottles and uh, put it on the boat. And after we found it, of course, we celebrated with the champagne. But I asked uh, Rob, I said, why did you bring the champagne? I mean, how did you know that <laughs> we might find anything? Because I wouldn't open it up uh, if we didn't find anything. Yeah. And he said, I'm an optimist. Oh, and um, you know, sometimes it pays to be an optimist because sometimes life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell yourself you will not find anything and you don't search, you will never find anything. Exactly. That's the problem with the mainstream approach in academia that was arguing that it's an extraordinary claim to seek evidence for extraterrestrials. Actually, I don't think uh, it's an extraordinary claim. I think actually it's the other way around. Believing that we are unique and special and alone is extraordinary. And the only way we can find out the truth is by seeking the evidence. That's the way science is done. And without seeking the evidence, obviously we'll not find anything. It's just like a person claiming, I don't have a partner, you know, that there is nobody because he looks around and doesn't see anyone around him. Yeah. But uh, to find partners, you really need to go to dating sites. You need to find that there are others in your street, you need to go out to your backyard yeah. and search for anything beyond the rocks that you are familiar with. Perhaps you will find a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. Yeah. So that is the approach that I'm taking. Yeah, I mean, nothing's gonna hit you on the head, especially an extraterrestrial. Thank you so much, it's been a real pleasure. I know you have your next show in three minutes, so you gotta run. So thanks so much, it's always a pleasure, Avi. Thank you, Martin, it has been a pleasure for me. All right, you take care. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, uh, sorry, had to find the right button to push. So thank you so much, everyone, for watching listening, and we'll be back next week. Uh, now, again, like I said earlier, uh, you should probably want to subscribe to the YouTube channel down below. Click the notification button, because I could have a very important guest next week, uh, more or less a, whist a whistleblower, military whistleblower, 
uh, it's very possible he's going to be on. If not, if uh, if I can't make it work, then it'll be soon. And uh, otherwise, Paul Askoff will be on from uh, England. He was supposed to be on this last week until I got the uh, Admiral uh, to come on the show. Thanks, everyone. And remember uh, to keep your eyes to the sky.